You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, did our did our feet just touch underneath the table? No. That you, was just me. You touched my mic stand. Your mic stand? Okay, good, because that would have been awkward. And I'll thank you to back up off my mic stand. You know, 232 episodes of a show, but... We don't need our feet to be touching underneath the table. We already do a lot of gazing into each other's eyes during this podcast about men stripped to the waist fighting each other in a cage. Ben, we're back on folks time this week. You showed up about 20 minutes after our agreed upon start time. 15-ish. But for the last few minutes, you've been regaling me with stories about your foray into uh, competitive hockey. I mean, I guess competitive in quotes, hockey. But you have joined this league, a city league. Is this co-rec or all men? It's co-rec, but there seem to be absolutely no guidelines about how that's supposed to work. Like when I played on a co-ed softball team. Yeah, yeah, there's rules. Yeah, the rules, you have to bat like guy, girl, guy, girl. You have to have a certain number in the field, in the infield, in the outfield. With hockey, it seems like they don't care. Like they don't care if you have any women on your team. They don't care if you have one or two show up. You could have a team of all women one night. It doesn't seem to matter. Uh, I guess I kind of appreciate their laissez-faire attitude toward it. It's, it's kind of equality out there on the ice. Uh, and I'm going to tell you, I'm terrible at hockey so far. You joined, we should point out, maybe some of the listeners don't know, uh, you've never played hockey before this year. That's right. Had you skated? No. Not never skated. I, I skated once when I was sixteen uh, with a girlfriend who wanted to do it. But I grew up in Southern California, where you had to drive like thirty minutes to find an ice rink. Yeah, not a lot of ice. No, not a lot of naturally forming ice. Not a lot of opportunities to go out there and do that. So I learned basically how to ice skate like a couple weeks ago. Like I didn't own a pair after of ice you, skates after you signed up for the league. After I signed up for the league, didn't own a pair of ice skates until the day before the league started. So with that in mind. I'm kind of doing okay. Uh, and a, there's a budding rivalry, I've heard, between your team and a team sponsored by a local laundromat. I think that they're just employees of the local laundromat, as I understand it. But uh, I don't know. I'm just saying, like, maybe if you've been in the beginner's league for four years, green hanger, maybe you're not beginners anymore. But so, Sack up and go intermediate. So far, it seems like they are the hammer and you are the nail. Rivalry you know, there's wise. a lot of hockey left to play this season, Chad. We've got uh, music this week, but a slight switch up. This week, our music in between rounds comes from our friends at the independent hip-hop label Illiteracy. Uh, we've used their music on the show before, uh, and we hope it's okay if we use their music again this week, because they still have us on their mailing list and keep sending us songs. So, so there. I figured I would use it. Uh, if you like what you hear, you can check them out on Twitter, at Illiteracy, that's I-L-L-I-T-E-R-A-C-Y, or... At their website, www.ill-it.com. Oh, now I get it. Illiteracy. Yeah, it's illiteracy. Okay. Actually, the I, the LL in the word ill in their Twitter handle is in caps. So it's illiteracy. So visually, maybe it works better. 
Once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by Fulton and Rourke. Fulton and Rourke is a men's grooming company that thoughtfully creates products based on the on the way guys get ready. Right now, just in time for the holidays, Fulton and Rourke is launching their first candle. Named after the volcanic island in Alaska, the Sitkin Candle features notes of tobacco, vanilla, and fresh ocean pine. The flat black porcelain container is handmade by an artist out of Asheville, North Carolina, Chad. I know you probably don't expect us out there to be describing a candle to you as cool looking, but this one actually is. It might be the perfect candle for the sophisticated fight fan. You know, you, you light it daily on your altar of appeasement to the MMA gods, or just... I don't know, light it for normal candle-type reasons. You did pretty well with that flat black porcelain. You thought you were going to trip me up there. It's a little bit of a tongue twister. I'm all over it. You can pick up the candle for the holidays or any of the other fine Fulton & Rourke products you've heard us talk about on the podcast before. The solid cologne is dynamite. The long-lasting bar soap is great. And for my money, the foam-free shave cream is the best on the market. Check it out all for yourself today, your husband, for your friend. You just like to see clean up a little bit. See, I didn't nail that at all. Uh, go to FultonAndRourke.com. That's FultonAndRourke.com. See, I noticed how it says your your husband, not your boyfriend, though, because it might get serious. You go throwing around some Fulton and Rourke products at oh, that yeah. boyfriend, he's no, going to feel like, uh-oh, this yeah. is commitment heavy time now. He's going to put a ring on it. He's got to. Pretty much got to. Eight more days left to get your Dundasso t-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts over there at Cotton Bureau for their holiday rollout. Those are going to print already, so if you have ordered one, you will receive it. And if you order one before the sale ends, you will receive it. Uh, but as you know, I, after the next eight days, they're gone forever. How can you they're can just just sit here with a straight face and continue to say that? Post-factual world, my friend. Is it not difficult for you? No, we're just making our own reality here, just like everyone else. Three rounds, as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, we finally found something that can make gay guard Musasi smile, and it's getting that sweet revenge in the fictional country of Ireland. And in round number two, did you guys watch Michael Chandler fight Benson Henderson at Bellator 165 on Saturday? If not, you done fucked up. And in round number three, more fights, more fights, more fights. This weekend, Derek Brunson versus Robert Whitaker rolls off the UFC assembly line. Maybe the weirdest thing is this one actually seems like it's worth talking about. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time... Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Dirk Singlet. So a wrestler, I assume. Or somebody whose parents were just plain awesome. Uh, he writes, guys, Fedor versus Mitrione in Bellator. I know, right? It actually makes me feel a little sad at how well Fedor now fits into Bellator's collection of broken and outdated toys. I mean, the guy has nothing left, right? I'd love for you to tell me that I'm wrong, but I don't think you will. Discourse. Yeah, man. This was one of those where you feel like you should have seen it coming. Yeah. And then when it did actually happen, I was struck by equal parts. That makes perfect sense. And, oh, no. I wish that weren't happening. Yeah. It's, now, it seems like from from the very small amount I've read about this in the aftermath that even Matt Mitrione didn't know that who he, like who he was going to fight. Like, basically, Bellator was like, we've got somebody that we want you to fight. We want you to put your name on the contract, and, and we'll just roll with it. And Mitrione was kind of like, cool, let's do it, which I think speaks to the difference, one of the many differences between myself and Matt Mitrione. But uh, more power to the guy at this point. Do you think they just didn't trust him to keep the secret? 
I mean, now that you mention it, that seems like a pretty valid concern. And he likes to get on the Twitter, and once, you know, if you're an MMA dude and you know you're about to fight Fedor, how do, you, how do your thumbs not just wander to the keypad on, the, on your iPhone Well, didn't he, he quipped today, I think, that Bellator doesn't really have a heavyweight title right now, so maybe he'll just wrap Fedor's sweater around his waist. Man, don't act like I wouldn't be totally... If you're trying to get me into this fight... That's like the one way you could do it. Yeah, see, I feel torn. I feel like on one hand, back up off the sweater of absolute victory. Yeah, right. You haven't earned that sweater. Uh, but uh, but second, like, kind of kind of a sweet move from Matt Mitrione. I mean, and that's what Mitrione does. He's going to bring that to the table, and then he's probably going to go out there and just wax Fedor uh, in like four minutes. Okay, let's talk about the possible scenarios there because the way I see it, there's three ways this goes down. He goes out there and just steamrolls Fedor which kind of be a little bit sad, but will, I guess if you're Bellator, be a good way to put Matt Mitrione over, then Matt Mitrione's your guy in the heavyweight division. Uh, or Fedor surprises us, lands that old, you know, overhand murder ball, as Ben Goldstein used to call it, knocks out Matt Mitrione. I mean, it, it's heavyweights we're talking about. It's not unthinkable that Fedor could summon the old fire one more time. Um, and then that might be the worst thing for Fedor is because it convinces him he should fight six more years. Uh, or terrible, ugly, uh, going the full distance, heavyweights, wheezing and bleeding on each other. And then nobody wins, really. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we have very much reason to feel particularly bullish about Fedor's chances here. And granted, the guy's only fought twice uh, since this happened. But I just would point out that the last time he did knock someone out was 2012, the summer of 2012, when he defeated Pedro Hizo uh, via first round knockout. But since Pedro then, Hizo, I believe, was 72 years old at the time. That's true. Yeah, he did get uh, Jaideep Singh, I believe, to tap out from strikes during their fight over there at the uh, Ryzen Fight Federation uh, on December 31st, 2015. But then we had that absolute stinker against Fabio Maldonado. Uh, in June of this year, which is, uh, you know, if you were looking for conclusive evidence, I guess you could say that that we could pound the final nail in the coffin of the of the man that we used to think of as Fedor Emelianenko, and that the forty year old guy who's before us now is is just a ghost of that of that person. I think you got it in that Maldonado fight, uh, and yeah. So like, I think if you're looking for a way to bet, it's probably Mitrione. Mitrione takes this one, and and like. Correct me if I'm mistaken here, but that Fedor chin hasn't looked outstanding the last no. several years. And, you know, we saw it in that uh, Fabio Maldonado fight where he's still out there fighting like he's still Fedor and it's still 2003. And the game has changed a little bit since then. And he physically has changed a little bit since then. It's just kind of the natural processes of age. You know, nothing, you know, not not trying to insult the guy, but that's just that's just what happens. Um I I wonder though what would be sadder to watch. Like, would it be sadder if he just had stayed in Russia and continued to fight these weird, like hand-picked fights where they were set, decided, like, all right, here's what we'll do: we'll go get light heavyweight Fabio Maldonado, who seems like he will not present a whole lot of unique challenges to Fedor. So then Fedor can knock him out, and then when that doesn't work out, and you have to give him kind of a bullshit decision victory anyway, which then. Maldonado will appeal and like Fedor's sports body will say appeal denied. Then you, you know, you do a handpick somebody easier next time. Cause you can totally see the, the Russian fight scene doing that for Fedor kind of indefinitely, kind of as long as he wanted to keep showing up and doing it. 
Or is it better to have him come over to Bellator where you know they're at least going to throw him in some kind of fire, whatever kind of fire they have there, the same way they did in, in Strike Force to some extent, uh, where he ended up getting beat up a lot and kind of the, the first end of his career. Like, would it be better to see him forced to sink or swim, at least in the hopes that he might sink quicker and more <laughs> mercifully, um, or that at least would feel more legitimate if, if he does win or, you know, however the outcome goes, than to have him in these kind of like increasingly transparent charades? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question because if you proceed from the given reality that Fedor is going to fight someone somewhere in some fight promotion, then it almost feels maybe selfishly for me better to have him over here in the Americas uh, where we can keep an eye on him. Yeah, where we, yeah, where we can keep an eye on him. The thing that I wonder, Ben, is, at least, you know, Mitrione himself is 38. It's not like, uh, it's not like Fedor is going to go out there and fight John Jones or anything like that. But at the same time, I think that uh, Dirk Singlet makes a valid point here that 40-year-old Fedor feels very much at home in the Bellator landscape. And that makes me wonder, like, how is it that dudes like Ken Shamrock can tumble, uh, you know, ass backward into a fight against Hoist Gracie? Like, we're basically given all of these legends kind of like gimme fights. And then Fedor shows up, and he's got to fight Matt Mitrione, who, for better and for worse still feels like he almost still fits in in the other category of Bellator fighters. You know, that's a good point because if you had told me Fedor versus Tito Ortiz, yeah, I don't right? bat an eye. Yes, absolutely. You know? uh, Fedor versus Chael Sonnen. I mean, Jesus Christ, the incredible just bullshit Chael Sonnen would talk about Fedor. Come on, man. Like, yeah, that does feel, now that you, you put it that way, it does feel like maybe a missed marketing opportunity, but then wouldn't we just complain that they're doing the, you know, they're doing the Fabio Maldonado route except without the screaming spider lady? I, I, we probably would, but I mean, I can't, I honestly can't see having an episode of this show where we go on and complain about Fedor versus Tito Ortiz. Like that just seems awesome. I mean, maybe winner of Chael Sonnen, Tito Ortiz gets to fight Fedor yeah, for the I sweater. I mean, it, it is a multi-fight deal we've heard, right? Okay. So. <laughs> The uh, the glorious sweater of absolute victory championship perhaps will become an ongoing thing over well, there. And you'd think that right now, now is the time if you're Bellator to really go in, all in on that money weight division. The the seniors tour money weight division where all those guys are kind of around the same zone in any way. They're all old enough that it doesn't. You know, five pounds isn't going to make the difference here at this point. Let's have some damn fun. Next question this week comes to us from Danielle Davis. She writes, Ryan Bader defeated the artist formerly known as Antonio Rogerio Nogueira last ouch, night. Ouch, and now may be in line to fight the winner of Daniel Cormier and Anthony Johnson. Are you fucking kidding me? Can't we just put this division on pause until I get my John Jones back? Did you write this email? No. I did you? Did you? <laughs> no. You, is, is Danielle Davis your, your is pseudonym? Is my pen name? Yeah. Am I nom de Because this sounds like somebody just channeling Chad Dundas' I mean, thoughts on the light heavyweight division. It seems kind of like we're coming from the same place. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't we like kind of already consider the light heavyweight division on pause? I mean, you can still go ahead and have the fights because you need to fill the gap on the schedule and all that. But come on, we all know. Yeah. Uh you referred to the original matchup here, which was better than this one. You referred to Alexander Gustafson versus Little Nog as hot garbage. That's true, yeah. Just weeks ago. 
And then this one, you know, I was thinking about this as I was laying there on my couch sick with the flu on Saturday night. And it's like 1030 when this fight is on and it's kind of like stretching into the late second, early third round. And I'm flipping back and forth between this and the pretty awesome fight at Bellator and the, the main event there that I'm sure we'll talk about uh, in round two. And I just I could not for the life of me figure out why why this had to happen again. Why did why did we need to do this again? Yeah, uh, it also I think says something about your just underscores I guess our 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 feelings about the, the UFC on Fox pacing that like I'm pretty sure if I'm remembering the turn of events correctly that I watched the that the the uh, the previous fight before Bader Nogueira ended, uh, you know Thomas Almeida getting a second round knockout there. And then I watched the first two rounds of Michael Chandler against Benson Henderson and then turned back just as Ryan Bader and Antonio Rogerio Nogueira were taking the cage. So, like, this is some slow-ass pacing. I watched two, almost a whole damn fight, like a a, a regulation three-round fight in between UFC fights. And frankly, once I saw what Bader and, and uh, Lil Nog were going to be offering us, uh, I just kicked it back over to Bellator and stayed there well, because as I think we will talk about in round one, this was like one of those rare opportunities where the thing that Bellator was doing was far superior to the thing that the UFC was yeah, doing. Yeah, well, and it was one of those moments too where I did the same thing and realized early on into that Bader little nog fight, oh yeah, well, of course, of course this is what was going to happen. What else the hell did we expect? Uh you know, you should have been able to just look at it on paper and knew this is exactly how you were going to, like, the the uh, split you were going to have, like, some actual high-paced action over there in the Bellator main event, and then some just kind of sad-ass shit going on at the UFC Fight Night 100, where you're just, you know, I legitimately had to go back and consult the record to be sure that they had fought once already. That tells you something about this rematch. You know, how unnecessary the rematch was. And then, when I did figure out the event that they fought on, do you remember that one? No. I mean, you tell me that, that Roger Nog and Ryan Bader have fought before. I I believe you. <laughs> and I think to myself, of course, yeah, that sounds like a thing that has probably happened. Because there's only five light heavyweights. They've all fought each other at least <laughs> once. But I couldn't tell you what happened or where it was or, or, or when it was. UFC 119 in Indianapolis. Uh, in 2010, Chad, uh, it was the event probably you'll you'll remember as the one where Frank Mir and Crow Cop were the main event, mm. and they had a really shitty fight. Watch that fight every night before I go to bed. <laughs> and in the literal last minute of the fight, Frank Mir knocks him out with a knee, just knocks him out cold. Yeah. Uh, and it was the only knockout on the card, and still they did not give Frank Mir the knockout of the night bonus back when they were still doing that, back before somebody in legal said, hey, maybe this will end up being a bad idea if a concussion lawsuit's come around at some point. Uh, even though he had the only knockout that you, that Dana White was still just like, nope, that was a crappy fight. We're not giving any knockout bonus tonight. Um, kind of a dick move to, to Frank Mir there. Like that, I remember that happening. I remember that well. I even remember on the prelims, uh, Sean McCorkle submitting wow, you Mark really Hunt. you really do remember this. Yeah. 
well, I went and looked it up when I was writing about it earlier, but I, I remember this one uh, where Sean, remember it was Mark Hunt's UFC debut and Sean McCorkle submitted him and it was like Mark Hunt's like sixth loss in a row and everybody was like, oh man, what yeah, are we doing, Mark I Hunt? I see much like the first fight between Bader and Nogueira, you could just be making all this stuff up right now and I would probably <laughs> just sit over and be like, yeah, that sounds like stuff that happened. But see, that's the thing. I looked at the fight card and I was like, okay, no, I have some vague like recollection of this. I remember Sean Shirk splitting Evan Dunham's head wide open. I remember this stuff once I see it all laid out in paper. No memory of Bader little nog what's like it could be just some inception shit that they put in there to just trying to trick me to make me think that it actually happened and i would have no idea which tells you about the complete lack of a reason to do the rematch all right well let's talk about the elephant in the room here and that daniel davis mentions it in this email that ryan bader could be kind of by default your number one contender in the light heavyweight division although ben this fight was also the last fight on bader's current UFC contract, and I think he's one of those dudes that's going to test his his value on the open market. Uh, what, what do we see happening here? I mean, like, you could... Here's the thing. If you told me, Ryan Bader, that this time next year, Ryan Bader was UFC light heavyweight champion, I would give you, like, almost even money to that as opposed to Ryan Bader being in Bellator this time next year. You think that there's as good a chance of that? No way. I mean, don't you, like, let's say, well, here, I'll just Wait, lay is out. there a plane crash that kills, like, the top three light heavyweights in the UFC? Well, let's let's say that uh, Anthony Johnson knocks out Daniel Cormier. Just could happen, right? Okay. And then Bader goes out there and wrestles one away from him. But John Jones is not going to be suspended forever. He has a return date in sight. That, that's true. But, like, who knows what we're going to do with him once he comes back, right? Does he get fast-forwarded straight into a title shot? Because, I mean, Dana White has taken a fairly hard line. I don't think anyone believes him. Oh, yeah, he, he is he'd, flat. Never, he'd never reverse his position on something like that. <laughs> that rock? Yeah. Rock of credibility? <laughs> but, like, he he's taken a fairly hard line that John Jones... That he's not going to, at least right away, be headlined in shows with John Jones. Yeah. But then again, yeah. counterpoint, only five light heavyweights. So there's not a lot else you can <laughs> also do. Also counterpoint, Dana White just be saying stuff sometimes, and it does not have any basis in truth. Well, if, if you're Ryan Bader and you want to try to see if the UFC will bid for your services, I can think of no better time to do it. Because, as you said, the light heavyweight division is so damn shallow uh Bader you know he is capable of beating people like only you know for the most part only the guys who are the perennial over and over again contenders in the division seem like the ones who are going to beat Bader you know right now the UFC has to be doing the calculation to be like can our light heavyweight division afford to lose a guy like this maybe because he's already fought most of the people and everybody kind of has a sense that they think that they know who he is and what he's capable of at the same time could bellator turn around and put him to some good use uh could we end up with a light heavyweight division that is somehow even goddamn shallower than the one we're dealing with right now and just for example this past weekend weren't we glad we had a ryan bader to call uh, to jump in there and you know fill this spot when we just had no better ideas. Bellator 170, Ryan Bader versus Phil Davis 2. Another rematch that needs to happen. 
for the Bellator Light Heavyweight Championship. I thought we were having fun over there. That's not fun. Next question from Vern Russell. He writes, could we get your thoughts on the unpunished head kick Claudia Gadella threw to an obviously grounded Courtney Casey? It looked like she tried to pull the kick back before it hit, but a point wasn't even taken. Should the point deduction be up to the discretion of the ref, or should it be just a common practice discourse, please? Okay, the question, this one gets murky because... When you see it live, it looks like, what are you thinking, Claudia Gadelia? You just went all pride rules and kicked her right in the damn head when there was no, like, no mitigating factor there to, to excuse it. And then the more they show the replay, the more you can't even really be sure that it actually hit her. Yeah, just a kick to the ponytail. Vicious kick to the ponytail up top of the head. Uh, well, yeah, but does, should that matter? If the kick lands? Yeah, that should matter. Yeah, but you've already thrown it against an, a, a grounded opponent. I mean, I suppose if you just whiff, like if it's clear that that you, like you spin yourself around from a missed kick, maybe all you do is offer a stern admonishment there if you're the referee. But like if that kick, if you think that kick kind of lands, shouldn't you to just take a point no matter what? Because you did in fact just kick, try to kick a grounded opponent. I think if you make if you make contact with her. Then yeah, then I think that you take a point away, uh, regardless of what kind of a damage it does, because that is just such a blatant foul. But if you don't make contact, then I think you know it, it's the same thing as like remember when Anderson Silva in the rematch with Chael Sonnen threw that like flying knee that at first looked like it was targeted at his head, and then the replay you can see basically hits him in the upper chest area. Which then, like after that, kind of became a, a common thing we'd see guys trying to target that knee to the chest of yeah. a grounded opponent. And at the time, live, it almost looked like he aimed for his head and missed. Uh, the, what matters in those situations is actually committing the foul. Not like if you were going out there with every intention to commit a foul and you just screw it up and you don't, then I don't, I don't see a point deduction. Yeah. I guess when you say it gets murky, that that's where I start to have problems with with how the rules are enforced. And we've talked about this time and time again on the podcast. It just seems like you give too much discretion to the referee, uh, which I think is kind of unfair both for the fighters and for the referee because you kind of put the referee in an insane and impossible position in a lot of places and a lot of instances uh, in these fights because the referee, like you said, like uh, the referee is out there having to make a split second decision about whether Anderson Silva or what he's doing essentially with his intent. So to me, if you have a case like what you had in this fight, Gadella versus Casey, uh, I feel like if you need to take a point for an obvious illegal strike, even if it only lands on the ponytail, but maybe, um, maybe, maybe that's not good. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I do agree that there needs to be a little more written down on paper about, we've talked about this before, just in all ways about what happens after a foul is committed. And, you know, somebody mentioned this on the my Twitter mailbag a couple weeks ago where they were just suggesting that there needs to be kind of a standard recovery time given to all fouls and not just like you kicked in the groin, you get five minutes, you're poked in the eye. We're going to stand there asking you if you can see every seven seconds until you say yes or no. Uh, and, you know, we should have like a, a little bit more of a coherent system on that. That one also, I think, suggested a minimum uh, time that you have to take after a foul just to kind of uh, eliminate the feeling of being rushed back into action, which I also don't think is a bad idea. I think, I think we, we do just leave too much up to the the referee kind of on the spot having to come up with 
some kind of decision. And as you've pointed out before, they almost always err on the side of just get the fight going again as soon as possible and move on. Quickly, last question here from Rue from Appenroid. Huh. Is that- I-, I believe Appenroid is a video game show, internet-based video game show. Are you just making this up? Uh, yes, I also wrote this one. I've just written all of these questions <laughs> okay. for us this week. No, Rue from Appenroid it fo- follows us both on Twitter. Uh, you follow him. I've okay. noticed. So but, I thought but maybe you but would. But when have you a say better... Appenroid, you talked about it like you actually know what that is. Well, I looked it up. Well, okay. I wanted to make sure that this wasn't a joke. You know that that Rue from Appenroid wasn't an international soccer. Star <laughs> yeah, he's not the striker not, for that you and I haven't Tottenham? heard of. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but some kind of. I'm a, I'm an old person, man. It's some kind of video game, something or other. <laughs> okay. The kids do it on their phone. Maybe. Anywho, he writes. So Manny Gamburian retired. I hate to be that guy, but do we care? It meant a lot when Misha Tate did it, but Manny? That guy has never been one to move the needle, and I don't think any of my friends said, oh, we need to watch the Gamberian fight on Fight Pass prelims. Please discuss. Uh, so, yeah, maybe not necessarily a surprise uh, or even that monumental of an occasion. Manny Gamberian, 35 years old, the former runner-up on uh, The Ultimate Fighter Season 5, just 2-3-1 and one in his last uh, six fights for the UFC, dating back to the end of 2013. Uh, he walks away. He's, he's had uh, physical trouble, physical problems, especially with his shoulder throughout his uh, UFC career. In fact, I think that's what cost him the tough five title, right? That's Didn't right. he dislocate his shoulder or something like, like immediately that? Immediately against Nate Diaz. Yeah. Uh, so he walks away. Not necessarily big news in the MMA world, but man, I would just point out, maybe lost to history at this point, but the crazy Diaz-style antics of... Uh, Manny Gambarian and Carl Parisian back in the day and on the Ultimate Fighter Season 5, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Uh, Where young, fresh-faced Nate Diaz yeah. is actually being kind of cool about it by Diaz standards up to a point and then loses his shit with Carl. Carl Parisian, the infamous don't you know who, who the fuck I am, bro, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's some stuff to like there. Like, everybody who at this point loses their shit for the Diaz brothers should probably... Uh, you know, show some form of respect to to Parisian and Gamburian because those guys were doing the same thing. Somehow less likable Just when they like did less it. less successfully. Yeah. You know, when a guy like Manny Gamburian retires, I, I never get that sense of like, hey, I don't care like because you weren't, you know, you didn't reach a certain level, so therefore I don't care about your retirement. It always just kind of drives home to me the... A, an, the essential kind of cruelty of the nature of the fight business. Uh, because you see a guy like him who's 35, who was in it for a long time, uh, really trying to reach that next level, could never really kind of get there. Um, but, you know, Jesus Christ, he's been in the UFC since, uh, and, you know, went to the UFC, to the WEC, and then back to the UFC after uh, the, the uh, merger, or the, the WEC folded there. But he's been kind of fighting for Zufa since 2007. A long time to hang around in there uh, and to be at that level, even if you're up and down, uh, and then to kind of realize it's not going to happen for me and I should go ahead and, and stop now. And that's just kind of the one of the brutal realities of this business that you don't really make a whole lot of money if you're one of those guys like Manny Gambirian. You're always struggling to get to that next level where you will make that kind of serious money. And then at a certain point, you realize it's not going to happen. It's not worth the suffering anymore, and you're better off cutting your losses and going to 
try to figure out whatever your next life is going to be. And that's the story for a whole lot of fighters. Like Manny Gamburian making it this long, being uh, in the UFC until he's 35, uh, consistently like that is kind of still an exception to the rule. Yeah, and it looks like roughly 19 or 20 fights under Zufa-owned promotions. If you count both the UFC and WEC, that doesn't count the you know fights he had on The Ultimate Fighter. Uh, I still feel like it points out one of the, the many like growing pains maybe of this sport that a dude can have 20 fights in the UFC. And now we assume Manny Gambrian retires at 35 and he's going to have to find something else to do. Right. Right. Well, and that's one of, you know, when we looked at that uh, paperwork from the professional fighters association thing, one of the things that they're asking for is like these pensions that will kick in when you're 65 or something. And like 20 fights is the kind of the lower end of that, like that you will start getting a, I think it was like 75 K a year. Uh, pension when you're 65 if you hit 20 fights like that kind of shows that that's that is what they consider the you know solid veteran status in the UFC and you can't really disagree and it reminds me just kind of that you know I've written about it before and talked to economists about it before that kind of tournament theory of of economics that works at that's at work in MMA where the real money is reserved only for those just elite few at the top. Everybody else is trying to get there, and most of them will end up dropping out when they realize they're not going to make it. And it's just kind of a question of when they realize it, some earlier than others. Uh, and, you know, that's it's just a brutal, brutal business to be in. And that shit like this really drives that point home because it's not like you can look at Manny Gamburian and say, you suck, because you don't get to hang around that long if you suck. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. News always happens. The newsletter itself is short, it's informative, we would like to think it's funny. If you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, if it feels like we just had a conversation on the podcast about Gegard Mousasi, it's because we just did. The guy fought on October 8th at UFC 204, ended up beating Vitor Belfort via second-round TKO. Turns around, gets the opportunity to jump back into this fight uh, against Uriah Hall to, uh, I guess, in, in Mousasi's own mind, uh, erase the loss that he had via spinning shit to Uriah Hall back in September of 2015. Uh, shows up over there in the fictional country of Northern Ireland and does the damn thing. Uh, beats Uriah Hall by TKO in the first round uh, to improve his record to what I still find every time I look at it to be an astonishing 41-6-2. I know. It seems like one of those Hicks and Gracie uh, things where he shows up with like 750 wins somehow. I don't yeah, know like where. half these Gegard Mousasi fights are just him fighting dudes in alleys and basements. Yeah, there's like... Count, counts every single one of those. There's Counts five every a day. single training victory yeah. in sparring. There were local gang members coming off the street and he taps them out one after the other. Uh, you know, you mentioned 
the in his mind erase the the loss to Uriah Hall and we've talked before how fighters will talk that way uh even though it doesn't actually work like that that the other guy gets to keep his win over you even if you then even the score later on but this I think is as close as you can possibly come to actually doing that because of the way everybody looked at the first fight where Yegard Musasi was winning basically all of it until uh the start of the second round where Uriah Hall pulls off some straight up tech and shit on him and it was awesome, but it also seemed just like one great combo out of the blue ends the fight when it looked like otherwise he was absolutely headed for defeat. Uh, everybody kind of looked at it like, that was awesome, but we do wonder if you could pull it off again. And then Musasi goes out there uh, and plows through him in one round, and it makes you think, okay, that's what we thought it was. That is, as I think, as close as you can come to kind of erasing the first victory. The description of Uriah Hall's victory on Wikipedia I know, says, I know. jumping, spinning, back kick, flying knee, and punches. I know. I pointed this out. I recall about this earlier today, how that even just reads like a list of Tekken moves, like, <laughs> like some buttons you're supposed to press. If somebody pulled that off against you while you were playing a video game, you would accuse them of having been like practicing and studying the instruction booklet while you were gone at work. Uh, and still a part of me watched this fight and wondered there must be an alternate universe where Uriah Hall survives that round. You know, it was kind of a questionable stoppage. He wasn't exactly getting beat up, but he also wasn't getting out of there. Uh, he only had, you know, less than 30 seconds more to make it to the end of the round. There must be some alternate universe where he makes it to the end of the round. And then at the beginning of round two pulls off a jumping, spinning, flying knee, elbow attack, dragon's fury breath. And puts Gegard Musasi away again and says, see, I told you so. To me, it was like the the ultimate Gegard Musasi stoppage where it was like he was kind of so casual about it, so patient in getting in on that on that takedown attempt. And then in Musas, true Musasi style, so casual about raining down those punches was that like you almost didn't notice that Uriah Hall was in trouble until the referee stopped it. And in fact, the... Uh, the UK broadcast team, the overseas broadcast team was kind of having a discussion about something else uh, right up until, you know, a couple moments before Mark Goddard stepped in to stop it. It was just very Musasi style, just like kind of no big deal. It was, and it, you know, it, it seemed like a stoppage based not so much on Uriah Hall being really, really hurt and in trouble, but just that if you're the referee and you see a guy who is stuck in a position he can't get out of, and that position includes him being hit about the head region over and over again, at some point you do have to make a decision. Otherwise, it just starts to look silly. Like, that's not an intelligent defense. The guy can't just lie there with his arm wrapped around his head and get punched. At some point, somebody's got to do something there. So that's uh, Gegard Musasi's fourth win in a row in the UFC. Uh, Talis Latis, Tiago Santos, Vitor Belfort, and now Uriah Hall. Not too shabby a streak there. Uh, all of them in 2016, by the way. Uh, so four victories this year, also not too shabby for Gegard Musasi. Uh, he's been on quite a roll recently, Ben, and like we've talked about before, he's only 31 years old, but has been in the game seemingly forever and has always been the dude, even dating back to when he was just spoken about reverently in like fighter message boards. He's always been the dude that everyone has been waiting to just break out and become this unstoppable force of nature. Now he finds himself uh, in an interesting position in the middleweight division. In fact, interesting times at middleweight all the way around where we think uh, Michael Bisping will relent on his earlier dec declaration not to fight Yoel Romero and they will have that fight in the spring. 
and then you know Luke Rockhold and Jacare Souza probably still going to happen. That leaves Musasi kind of floating around out there. We don't know what Chris Weidman's deal is after all types of fucking blood was coming out of his head at UFC 205. Uh, and then next week you got Robert Whitaker against Derek Brunson, which we'll talk about in round number three. But if you're Gegard Musasi, like it kind of seems like you are sitting in a pretty good spot no matter what goes down. Yeah, and it also seems like his uh, turn personality-wise has come at the right time for him. Yeah, like he's kind of figured out that that he can be marketable by just by kind of being himself. Right? Yeah, that he can be, you know, a a more vocal version of himself. He doesn't have to be a completely invented character. Uh, he can stay true to himself, but still end up being a dude that we're interested in, especially, and even interested in when he gets on the mic, if only because of like his flippant attitude about feeling like he's going to get screwed, but also feeling like how it's kind of ridiculous that he could easily go out there and beat the champion and everybody knows it. Uh, that, it's not a bad way to play it if you're Gegard Musasi. You know what would be insanity which I've never thought of until this very moment, Gegard Mousasi against Yoel Romero. What I mean, come on. <laughs> come on what? Just complete weirdness, right? You got the consummate striking professional in Gegard Mousasi against Yoel Romero who goes out there and kind of uh, duffs it around the cage like he doesn't know what he's doing for 12 minutes and then ends his fights via unbelievable breathtaking bursts of violence. I would watch that. Hashtag would watch. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we've talked about it before that you're in a situation in the UFC middleweight division right now where you have so many hashtag would watch fights. You kind of just want to say, screw the rankings and let's just make them all. Let's just get a round robin going here and see every possible combination. Tough spot right now for Uriah Hall. He had that win over Musasi that uh, basically people called bullshit on. Uh, back at the end of 2015, and since then has lost three in a row now. Robert Whitaker, Derek Brunson, who both fight each other next weekend, and now Gegard Mousasi going to get that one back uh, in Belfast. So, you know, Uriah Hall, 32 years old now. Uh, at one point, I feel like was regarded as a big-time prospect if he could just kind of uh, uh, show a sense of urgency maybe inside the cage. Uh, maybe for uh, you know maybe unfairly maligned in a lot of senses because of that. But now, uh, if you're Uriah Hall, I don't know. I mean, I guess you just keep fighting people, but I don't know how you how you build yourself back up from this one. You know, I think I would have more sympathy for Uriah Hall, and I think I have in the past because, it, like you said, it did seem like they kind of attached that the high expectations to him early on in the Ultimate Fighter. Uh, you know, in part because they were doing the only thing they knew how to do to get ratings up for the Ultimate Fighter was to say, hey, we have the next big thing on this season. You better tune in, uh, you know, whether or not they believed it. And, you know, that's a lot of baggage for the guy to carry uh, when he jumps into the actual UFC middleweight pool. And then, you know, I saw his interview this week with our very own Mike Bond, who you will insist on referring to as Mike Bone. Mike Bone. And did you did you see the actual video I, of the interview? I read the story. I did not watch you the, gotta see the video. I did not watch the video because I felt embarrassed already without even seeing it. The the video is where you really get a sense of what's going on there because he is being a dick to Mike from the very beginning. Like Mike asked him the question about, you know, the, how the fight came together and what he thought about it. And Uriah Hall acts like he just can't believe 
Mike does not know the answer to that question, never considering that perhaps Mike does know the answer to the question. He wants you to explain it to the people actually watching the video because this is not just a conversation between you and Mike. This is for like the fans uh, to to understand the situation. Uh, and throughout the entire like interview, not only is he being a jerk needlessly about it, um, but also just saying a bunch of like internally contradictory stuff like how uh, he doesn't care about money. He doesn't care about any of that. Why did this fight happen? Well, you know, it's all about politics. You got to play the game. You got to make that money. And you're like, you just, the things you're saying do not make sense together. That's where, when I see you kind of acting like that before the fight, it makes you tough to sympathize with afterwards. When, like you said beforehand, you might've been a sympathetic character. All right. Do you want to do, are you fucking kidding me? And then we will move on. Sure. Uh, for this week. Uh, sounds like, Uriah Hall is going to escape. Are you fucking kidding me free this week? Although may have been a good candidate. You know, he's been through enough this week. (laughs) We don't need to add this to him. Uh, Ben, this week we're going to talk about some Bellator stuff from Bellator 165 in round two. Uh, But I wanted to send my are you fucking kidding me out. Also Bellator related to uh, Bellator matchmakers, I guess, and Michael Venom Page. Uh, the guy who seems like he's just poised to break out and be a big superstar, 29-year-old English striker with a crazy and sometimes infuriating style in there. Uh, as I was watching him uh, cruise to a split decision win over Fernando Gonzalez over the weekend, I had to wonder to myself, am I supposed to still care about what happens to Michael Page considering that we are now, what, two years and like six fights into his Bellator career? Uh, and they're still having him go out there and crush Evangelista Santos's forehead and grind out split decisions over dudes like Fernando Gonzalez. Are you fucking kidding me? At some point, Michael Page is going to have to do something to make me care. Uh, perhaps fight a welterweight that I have heard of before uh, who is not the male cyborg Santos. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. But Chad, this week, my are you fucking kidding me? This is kind of coming in as we're recording the podcast. But did you see the UFC is going back to Arizona in January? Uh, and you know who's going to be the headliner of UFC Fight Night 103? No, huh? Who? Tell me. Yeah, Rodriguez. Okay. Who yes. I know you're into versus BJ Penn. Come on. You're making that up. I'm not Earlier making that up. Earlier in the show where we did the thing where I was like, you could be making this up right now. And I'm I would gonna, just say. I'm going to show you the headline on MMA Junkie right now. Hall of Famer BJ Penn headlines UFC Fight Night 103 in Phoenix versus Yair Rodriguez. Now, see, this is where on the podcast we should have a recurring segment called Why? <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? That is terrible. Wow. The surreal nightmare of BJ Penn's attempt to come back over and over again just got a little surrealer. At least we can rest easy in the knowledge that it won't actually happen. This is where uh, Yair Rodriguez lands a spinning back kick and BJ Penn's face somehow just melts. Fucking kidding me? Wow, now I feel sad. That's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Chad, you mentioned it earlier where people were faced with a bit of a decision. 
on Saturday night if they were shit-eating wild men for mixed martial arts and had to watch all this stuff live as it went down. When you had to decide if you were going to watch Michael Chandler versus Benson Henderson in the main event at Bellator 165 in Scott Coker's ancestral home of San Jose, California, or if they were just going to continue to follow whatever the UFC does at Sao Paulo with Bader versus Nogueira, we're told to. There's no way to independently confirm that. And if you chose Bader Nog, as you said, Chad, you done fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, I think you There's qualify no ar- for hugger status. Right? <laughs> There's no argument that just results-wise, you made a poor choice. You did. I'll tell you what. I got about midway through this crackerjack between Benson Henderson and Michael Chandler when I realized what kind of a debt of gratitude uh, Bellator probably owes a dude like Michael Chandler. Because Michael Chandler, at this point, we have every reason to believe, is kind of a Bellator lifer. He's been there since 2010. Uh, he's one of those guys, one of the few guys that Bellator has that you look at and, and can think and consider a legitimate top 10 fighter in his weight class worldwide, regardless of what promotion that he's in. Uh, and while you don't want to go overboard and say that he's like a big star or anything like that, he seems like one of the few guys that Bellator has that depending on the matchup, like if you can get Michael Chandler an intriguing matchup, he's going to go out there and give you an awesome fight and be one of the very, very few promotional drawing cards that Bellator has that can make people turn the channel from the UFC and be like, I wonder what's happening in Bellator. Oh, it's Michael Chandler. He's awesome. I will watch this. And like, you know, same thing goes for Benson Henderson. I just think given Michael Chandler's longevity over there, you got to kind of give it up to him, man. Well, uh, I don't know if it's a smart business move, but while Eddie Alvarez and Will Brooks and everybody else is going off to seek their fortune in the UFC lightweight division. Just seems like Michael Chandler is just holding it down for Bellator. You know, you mentioned Will Brooks, and I think that's an interesting comparison because, you know, he has those those two losses to Will Brooks. Uh, and if you think, though, at this moment right now, who would you want to trade careers with? If you look at Will Brooks, who is you know, one and one in the UFC, just had that fight with the other cowboy uh, who came in overweight and then TKO'd him. And right now just kind of seems like another guy in that division over there in the UFC. And then Michael Chandler, who is kind of, you know, the guy over there and Bellator, the guy who they stake a whole lot on, uh, and who is a big deal every time he fights over there. I kind of have to feel like the way everything has played out to this point, Michael Chandler made the right move. You know, better to be the guy in Bellator than just another guy in the UFC, it seems. Yeah, that might totally be the case, especially when, when you can go out and, turn in awesome fights pretty much every time you need to this Benson Henderson one uh you know even though it didn't necessarily have a ton of fight or a ton of hype before it happened like turned out to be a a, a tremendous fight it looked like Michael Chandler was going to stop Benson Henderson in the first round Benson Henderson shows off some of that like insane durability and just a flat un un unwillingness to get submitted i guess you could say and then kind of does that thing that he does benson henderson in that even when he's losing the fight he just has an obstinate refusal to give an inch ever and is just constantly working constantly moving making michael chandler keep pace with him even when michael chandler has dominant positions and you got the feeling if this one went six or seven rounds maybe benson henderson wins it because michael chandler is starting to fade down the stretch but uh instead you get this split decision verdict for michael chandler uh 
And one of those experiences where after I watched it, I was like, damn, that was awesome. I should watch Bellator more often. Yeah. Well, until you see what they're coming back with you with, you know, next week or something. And then maybe you, you don't feel that way because they don't have enough Michael Chandlers. Right. Uh, They've the only got one. There. Therein right. lies the rub. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you're right, though, that Bellator does owe a huge debt of gratitude to those guys, those those rare guys who can do that and who can, you know, just way the schedule lines up can afford you a positive comparison with the UFC because those are the nights you need if you're Bellator to gradually start to make the point to fight fans like, hey, the brand name doesn't always mean that you're getting a better deal over there, that sometimes we have the better deal and it's at least at least worth considering when we're both on the same night uh, which one you want to go ahead and watch. And we've talked before about how the challenge for Bellator is just getting that out there, yeah. just getting through the you know constant... UFC static to let people know, hey, by the way, we have a really good one this weekend. We don't have just another one uh, the way the UFC does. This is one of those weekends where you you maybe should give us the nod. And that is a really tough thing for Bellator to do. Uh, nights like this, everything kind of plays out in your favor and, and you're able to do it. You know, I just wonder how many nights like this do you need to pull off and how many are you capable of pulling off if you're Bellator? Yeah, and that's the trouble. I mean, you can only have Michael Chandler fight one of the Pitbull brothers so many times, right? Like, we're not necessarily going to turn tune in to watch Michael Chandler fight Derek Campos with the same zeal that we turn tune in to watch him fight Benson Henderson, which is why at the top of the round I said you kind of need to give Michael Chandler compelling matchups to interest people to come over and see what Bellator has to offer. Now, I did feel like it was kind of shrewd of Michael Chandler to call out Josh Thompson at the end of this fight, even though, you know, Josh Thompson is getting up there in years, is kind of taking his own career one fight at a time. You're standing there in San Jose you while were, you're saying it to him. You were in the man's hometown, which I think made it even uh, more shrewd of a decision for Michael Chandler. But, like, next step, it seemed like you could either run back a Benson Henderson-Michael Chandler rematch, which I don't think anyone would complain about, getting five more rounds uh, the potential for 25 more minutes out of this matchup. Uh, or you could put him up against Josh Thompson, uh, maybe even in San Jose in, in February on that, uh, Mitrione Fedor card if, if both guys would be ready. Uh, and I think you got a, another nice fight for Michael Chandler. So that kind of says to me he knows who he is over there and that, you know, he doesn't want to just get matched up with the David Rickles again. He wants somebody, uh, Somebody that's going to move the needle at least a little bit. Well, you can, if you do, I, I can't decide if you would be justified in doing the Benson Henderson uh, rematch for Michael Chandler or if you're just playing into a, a bad pattern because it seems like every halfway decent fight that Michael Chandler has, has gotten himself into in Bellator, he's had to do it twice. That's true. He fought Eddie Alvarez That's twice. True. He fought uh, Tricky Ferrer twice. He fought David Rickles twice. Yeah, he fought Will Brooks twice. He fought Will Brooks twice. I mean, I guess maybe you might as well go. But it also, when you start to look at that, then it's that screams to me a uh, lack of depth of competition. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think you're going to be able to hide that if you're Bellator. Like, everybody kind of knows that that's, that's your deal. Uh, and yeah, I agree with you that, like, the, you don't necessarily need to do a rematch right away. Uh, although it seems like Ben Henderson is starting to count his days in the sport. Uh, he wants to go join the military, which is not what everyone says before they retire from professional that's athletics. True. That's true. Uh, uh, but if, you know, if you want to do Michael Chandler, Benson Henderson, again, you don't have an unlimited time to do it. Uh, I guess the same could be said for for Josh Thompson too, but I just you know you got two options, which for Bellator, 
That ain't bad. Yeah. You got to consider one yourself, more option than you usually you gotta have. You got to consider yourself lucky if you're Bellator. Can we talk for a second about how I love that Benson Henderson is still doing the thing where, you know, before the fight, he's not that great in interviews, doesn't have a whole lot to say, not very outspoken, uh, always seems just kind of uh, reluctant with the media. And then immediately upon conclusion of the fight is the dude stalking around the perimeter of the cage, screaming at everyone he sees. Yeah, screaming at Michael Chandler's corner man, even. Like, I don't know what the message was there, uh, but it seemed like there was a little bit of lingering bad blood. Like, Michael Chandler shoved him a couple times after this fight, uh, and it was hard to tell if he was angry or just sort of like, dude, go away. Like, it what seemed you, what like you, more like, dude, go yeah, away. What are you doing? And Benson Anderson seemed like, yeah, no, I should probably go away. I am kind of like getting in your face here. Like it didn't, it didn't ever seem like anybody around them was really concerned that it was going to escalate beyond that. Yeah, nobody acts weirder immediately following a fight, maybe in the entire sport, than Benson Henderson, and has really made a practice of that as and, of late. And it's not even just weird so much as it's completely out of character for how he is before the fight. Um, but at this point, it's consistent enough that I'm into it. I look forward to it. Now. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, uh, the thing with Benson Henderson is I kind of forget about it, and then it happens like after this. Uh, the fight is over. We're waiting for the decision, and Benson Henderson is doing that. And I remember, oh yeah, he always does this, and it's really weird. As for the actual decision, I thought I, I was surprised it was a split decision. Uh, for Michael Chandler, I yeah. thought that that he was going to take that fairly easily. Uh, at least on the scorecards, I mean, he obviously had a tough time there toward the end. However, if you're scoring by Stockton rules, yeah, he lost that by Stockton rules. Yeah, uh, kind of a rough. I guess this may be an obvious point to make, but a rough transition, unexpectedly rough for Benson Henderson going over to Bellator. Bellator. He lost that welterweight debut to Andre Korshkov. Uh, then he beat the other Pitbull brother, Patricio Freire, uh, at 160, uh, but uh, because of a TKO via leg injury, and then he comes back and loses this dandy of a fight, but a loss all the same to uh, to Michael Chandler. So just kind of weird times for Benson Henderson over there, although... You know, this particular loss to Michael Chandler, I don't think does much to like lessen my interest in Ben Henderson. If you tell me he was going to fight, you know, somebody else relatively interesting in Bellator next, I would, I would totally watch. Still. Yeah, who? Uh, Michael Page. I would watch that. All right. Welterweight. I would watch him fight, uh, Rory McDonald at 170. Do that. So basically you're saying he, he has to fight a welterweight for you to be interested. The lightweight. Well, the, I the mean, path is. Is shut there. There just is. There's just not a ton of uh, of options in Bellator. I think that's the point. Like, I mean, you could have him fight the caveman or somebody like that, uh, and I just don't. I just don't know if it. It's not Let's turns not the, that turns the dial enough for me. Anyway, that's gonna do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, another interesting middleweight contender fight on tap next weekend at UFC Fight Night 101 uh, from Australia, where two guys that hardcore fans probably are already watching, Robert Whitaker and Derek Brunson, are going to square off uh, to continue to jockey for position behind uh, that foursome of uh, Michael Bisping and Yoel Romero. Uh, Luke Rockhold and Jacare Souza, you know, for the, for the next shot, maybe at the 185 pound title. 
uh, really dreamy poster for this event. I don't know if you've seen it. Real, uh, oh yeah, both Robert Whitaker and Derek Brunson uh, looking like they could use those as their Tinder photos. Oh yeah, they're looking good. They're looking right into your eyes, just a little wistful, you know, not not exactly intimidating, you know, just uh, smoldering. One might even say. Let's talk about 25-year-old Robert Whitaker first because, uh, you know, he is a guy who has won five fights in a row at the UFC, uh, 16 and four overall, uh, got a decision over Rafael Natal at UFC 197 in April. He seems like just because of his age and the role that he's been on lately, he's a, a, a real prospect in this division. And yet he seems also maybe kind of like Derek Brunson, like a guy who flies under the radar more often than not. Yeah, I keep wondering if that is due to how many known, you know, I don't want to say stars, but, you know, close to pretty big name dudes you have right there at the top of the middleweight division. Like, you know, the that foursome that you mentioned where it seems like you can just make any combination of them happen and you're going to be into some awesome stuff, that at a time like that, it almost doesn't seem like enough to just be a young, still-on-your-way-up, really, really good fighter. You have to have something else going for you. Because those other guys have just, they've been around a little longer. They have a little bit more cachet with the fans built up. you got to do something to break into their echelon. And it seems like right now the answer for the UFC is, Take two of those guys, throw them against each other, and see who comes out of that, and then maybe you'll invest a little bit more energy in promoting that person. Yeah, and Robert Whitaker fought on the uh, you know, he the undercard of the Ronda Rousey uh Holly Holm fight at UFC one ninety three and the undercard of the John Jones Ovin St. Prue fight at UFC one ninety seven. Uh but aside from that, it it doesn't feel like he's gotten a lot of really high profile opportunities. Uh, four of his last five fights have been in Australia, where he is from. I guess he's from New Zealand. Uh, and, you know, again, now fights Derek Bronson again overseas in kind of like a, uh, a somewhat low-profile fight night event. Uh, so, so, yeah, for Robert Whitaker, just to echo what you said and also say, you know, it's getting harder and harder to stand out in the crowded UFC uh, television schedule and with the you know, the glut of almost 500 or over 500 fighters, I should say, on the roster. Uh, and for a guy like Robert Whitaker, maybe he's a super talented kid, but a guy that a lot of people feel like they're still kind of getting to know in terms of, of who he is and, and what he's capable of. Maybe, Chad, the problem you mentioned when we were talking about this before we started recording, that somehow his nickname, according to Wikipedia, is The Reaper? Yeah, that's what it says. You want to throw down a challenge, a gauntlet to the... Uh, to the CME universe here? I feel like we can do better. We can do better than the Reaper. So what you're saying, Ben, if I hear you correctly, is that coming out of this fight with Derek Brunson, maybe for next week's show, you would like the people to give us some ideas. I'm just saying that, you know, you think about the bricklayer, Alir Latifi. I, you can't tell me that he's not better off as the bricklayer. We put him on the map. We really did. Let's just be honest. I think, you know. Us and that picture of him astride a horse with his shirt <laughs> off. And, you know, the, the people's willingness to embrace that shows you that it just it just feels right. It just fits you. Uh, and the Reaper, I don't know. It sound, The Reaper seems like one of those nicknames where, like, if you're playing a boxing video game and you create your own character and it gives you, like, a drop-down list of nicknames you can choose from because those yeah. are the only ones that the, like, video game announcer is programmed to say. The Reaper is, like, right there on that list, guaranteed. Yeah, I don't hate it. 
You know, the, it's kind it's of spooky. Nothing, man. It's, it's just nothing. It's, it's got kind of a spooky air about it. It's not Pitbull, right? So if that really is his nickname, uh, and then it would stand to reason that Bruce Buffer has been saying it over and over again every time he fights. And I've seen this guy fight over and over again, and I, it has never stuck with me. So that tells you something right yeah, no, there. I'm not trying to make the case that it's great. I'm just saying I don't hate it. It's not totally uh, run of the mill. Like, can you think of another Reaper in the UFC? I myself cannot. But maybe that's just maybe every dude is called the Reaper and I just haven't noticed. You could literally nickname yourself the Garbage Man and it would be better than the Reaper. Especially if you came out to the cage with a, with a garbage can. That's right. Banging garbage hand lids. Uh-huh. I mean, that would make an impression. After you knocked the guy out, you dumped refuse on him out from the, from the garbage can that, itself. Now, that seems like an old-school Tito Ortiz move. Like, oh, he's the guy who dumps garbage on his opponent after he beats him. Let's talk a little bit about Derek Brunson before we wrap this up, since we just gave Robert Whitaker some airtime. Derek Brunson is a dude... Uh, I know the CME has been looking out for for a while, 32 years old now, also on a nice little win streak here in the UFC, uh, <clears throat> lost back-to-back fights to close out his strike force career, but since then has only lost to Yoel Romero, who is currently the number one contender, uh, and in a fight that Derek Brunson was kind of handily and surprisingly winning until he slowed down a little bit and Yoel Romero did that thing that he does where you're saying after you Romero in your words, duffed around the cage. Yeah. <laughs> just kind of duffed it around there. Lulled, yeah. lulled everybody into a false sense of security. And then bang. Next thing you know, you Romero beats you by TKO. Um, yeah. And like TKO via like elbows to the body, as I recall. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then ever since then, he's been kind of a damn terror. Like not only like, you know, he's won five in a row, but the last four, he's been out there hurting some people, man. He has looked kind of scary. And you think that now it seems like his best chance for kind of getting noticed is to play the, hey, why the hell am I not getting noticed? Look at look at me beating the shit out of people. Like, that seems like the best card he could possibly play, right? I mean, I that because if you're trying to get yourself, your your name alongside those other dudes... That seems like the only real avenue I can see. If you go out there and you knock out Robert Whitaker and then you look in the camera for whoever happens to be watching uh, this UFC fight night from Melbourne, you know, the weekend right after Thanksgiving when everybody's lulled into leftover comas and flipping between a bunch of college and pro football games. uh, That's the time when you want to say, hey, wake up, motherfuckers. I'm out here doing the damn thing and nobody's paying attention. You know, I hadn't thought of this, but... It probably really sucks to have to make weight the day after Thanksgiving, right? Because you just you're probably having Thanksgiving when you get home after the fight. Well, yeah, if you're them, you're already you know in the air to Melbourne at this point because it takes three days, I believe, to fly there. Yeah, I'm just saying, like everyone else back home is having Turkey Day, and you're probably you know balls deep in your weight cut at that point. Yeah, so, you're, you're telling them to lay you some leftovers aside. That that would probably. That probably stinks. Uh, yeah, man, Derek Brunson, like, you know, I, I think we've said it on the show before, like, uh, terrifying looking in the cage, uh, hasn't gotten a lot of notice. And that, and yet, if you watch him in interview, post-fight interviews or when he gets some media attention, he's pretty good at it, man. That's And that's kind of one of the reasons why I've been kind of looking forward to this fight to see both of these prospects go out there and see who comes out on top and and see if whoever it is can get a little a little bit of shine off of it because... 
You know, they'll, they'll be knocking on the door of the top five against somebody like Gegard Mousasa, you would think, uh, moving forward, just considering how the, the top of that division has been playing out the last several months. Yeah, and yet as far as like the actual kind of overall attention and hype you're going to get for this fight versus how difficult a fight it is for both guys, the ratio seems a little off there. It does indeed. Do you want to do uh, Just Saying Stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week? Sure. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff for this week? Well, Chad, I'm sure that you heard today that you remember how Rashad Evans versus Tim Kennedy was pulled from UFC 205 because Rashad Evans couldn't get licensed in New York. And we were told it was no big deal. It was just the, you know, the finicky New York State Athletic Commission. And so they were going to go ahead and move it to Toronto at UFC 206. Well, now it's not happening at UFC 206 either because Rashad Evans is not licensed to fight there either. Oh. So I guess I'm just saying, can we stop booking Rashad Evans uh, for these fights and assuring everybody that this time it's totally going to happen until we figure out whatever is going on with his licensing situation? Can we just get the guy's medical situation and licensing uh, situation solved and then decide what fights we want to do? Is that too difficult? I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Ben, this week, I'm just saying, I came to a kind of a weird conclusion about myself this past weekend when watching this event uh, from Northern I Ireland, uh, and that is, I think that I might be a uh, a Joe Martinez guy. Huh. In terms of uh, your ring announcing. So, I didn't know you really had to take a stand on that, but okay. Well, I mean, maybe that, that statement is going to offend the MMA glitterati out there in their glass towers. Uh, looking down on everyone else. Maybe the so-called experts are going to get offended. Wiping their brows with their pocket squares. I, but I guess I, I'm just saying I, I like a ring announcer who goes out there and just competently does his job. No more, no less. That, oh, that's my guy, Joe Martinez. Throwing that shade at Bruce Buffer. I, that's got nothing to do with it. That just seems like it has a little something to do with Joe it. Joe Martinez might be my guy. Might be hashtag Team Dundas. Just saying. <laughs> just saying. See, now we got our own ring announcer. <laughs> team Folks does not have one as that I know of. You know, maybe Jimmy Lennon Jr. No. <laughs> That's going to do it for this week's episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC Fight Night 101 live from Australia and look ahead to the following week uh, where I'm sure something else is going on. Is that UFC 206? Is that is that coming up? Seems like it should be, right? Yeah, it seems right. Uh, as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Howard Finkel. There you go. That's, that's team, your ring that's announcer? That's Team Folks' ring announcer. So a guy, a guy who doesn't even do the ring announcing anymore, except for, I believe, big events. They dust the Fink off and bring him down there. Inside my heart, he's still doing it. See, I thought you were going to go Michael Buffer. I thought you seemed like a real Michael Buffer type guy. You know, now see, that would be a dagger.